I'd like to ask you to turn with me to our text for this morning, uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that's on page uh, 835, if you're following in the Bibles in the pews. We're continuing a sermon series looking at the gospel of Luke, and we're up to chapter 5 uh, this morning, and Jesus' call to his disciples. So this is uh, what Luke writes. Uh, about Jesus calling Simon Peter. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of them, the one owned by Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and have not caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. So they signaled their companions in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came, they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said to him, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch that they had taken in. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, I'm not very big into pop music. Uh, aside from a brief stint as a Backstreet Boys fan in the late 90s, uh, it's never really been my thing. Uh, one of the students that I worked with, though, in the youth ministries at the last church I served uh, absolutely loves pop music. She's big into all the bands, artists, and pop singers who are currently topping the charts. And for a long time, her favorite uh, was the British boy band One Direction. Uh, she was obsessed with them. She knew every detail about the different members in the band. Um, she went and saw their concerts anytime they toured the state. She even had a blanket with their faces printed on it, which she slept with every night, including and this is how I found out about it, at our youth group lock-ins. Now, while One Direction went on hiatus a few years ago, a number of the, the members of that band have started solo careers, and so she still gets to obsess over them. Her favorite is Niall Horan. After the band started their break, he became her new focus. Uh, she put stickers of him all over her water bottle, listened to his music constantly, and made sure to attend his shows whenever he toured nearby. And during one such tour, she paid a bit extra for her ticket so that she could go backstage and meet him. And I remember asking her how it went at our next youth meeting. Oh, it was great, she said. He came right up to me and asked me how I was. And uh, I, I responded, well, what did you say? And she said, nothing. I was, I was just too awkward. I didn't know what to say to him. And I remember laughing and said, well, you know, that you probably didn't come across very well then. And she said, well, what are you supposed to say to someone like that? How are you supposed to act? How are you supposed to respond when you meet someone like that? Someone famous, someone that you care about, someone significant. Fair question. What are you supposed to say? How are you supposed to act? How should you respond when you meet someone of significance? That's actually the question 
that Luke is, is sort of posing, the writer of this gospel is posing here in our passage this morning. The only difference is that instead of asking that question about someone famous, like a pop star, like Niall Horan, he asks it about Jesus. What do you say? How do you act? How do you respond when you meet him? That's the question Simon Peter and his fisherman companions faced here in this text. After all, this is uh, Simon's first interaction with Jesus here in Luke's gospel. And I know, I know, uh, in the passage just before this, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, so hasn't he already met Jesus? Well, probably not. Um, Most commentators actually think that Luke tells these stories out of order, the story of Simon meeting Jesus and then the story of Jesus healing his mother-in-law. And I don't have time this morning to get into why. Uh, You can come back for our last Sunday night this evening before the summer in order to talk about it more back then. But this is when Simon, James, and John first encounter Jesus, these eventual disciples of Jesus. They might have heard about him before this, but this is their first time actually meeting him face to face. And Luke makes clear that this wasn't a neutral encounter. Meeting Jesus, interacting with him, experiencing him isn't something that you, that you get to go either way on. It's not something you can be lukewarm about. It's not something that you can pass off as, ah, this isn't really that big of a deal. No, meeting Jesus demands a response. It requires a reaction of some kind. It begs questions like, what do you think of this person? Who do you think he is? And then depending on how you answer, What does that mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my life? As we'll see, meeting Jesus is a significant, even life-changing event. It was back then, and I would argue that it still is for us today. And we see that even from the way this story unfolds. Let's start by setting the scene a bit this morning. Uh, Jesus is continuing his ministry in the northern region of Galilee in this text. In this passage specifically, we find him on the shores of the lake of Gennesaret. Uh, the other word, uh, probably the other term or phrase you're probably more familiar with is the Sea of Galilee. And he's teaching a crowd of people there. And it's a bit cramped uh, the way Luke paints this scene. It's not an insignificant group that's gathered around Jesus. They're crowding around him, pressing in against him, listening to him as he teaches. And so Jesus looks around for a way to sort of take the pressure off a little bit. Now, the corner of his eye, he spots a couple of boats left by some fishermen on the shore who are washing their nets nearby. Jesus steps into one of them and asks the fisherman who owns it, Simon, to put out from shore a little bit. Then he sits down and continues teaching the people from the boat. And this might sound strange to us, right? After all, wouldn't that make it harder uh, for the people to hear him? Actually, it would have made it easier. That's because, as N.T. Wright points out in his commentary on this passage, along the lake shore close to Capernaum, there is a sequence of steep inlets, a zigzagging shoreline with each inlet forming a natural amphitheater. To this day, if you get in a boat and push out a little from the shore, you can talk in quite a natural voice, and anyone on the slopes of the inlet can hear you clearly, more clearly, in fact, than if you were right there on the shore with them. Jesus was simply exploiting the geography of the area and the ready availability of a boat. And that's true, I actually uh, have first-hand experience of that. That's because when I was in Israel and Palestine a number of years ago, uh, this is one of the areas we visited. 
And uh, our guide actually pointed this out to us. He said that the way that the slopes there interact with the lake uh, creates a natural system of acoustics that allows your voice to carry quite clearly over long distances. Uh, We actually tried it out in reverse of the way that Jesus does it here. Our guide sent one of the members of our group up the hill a little ways into sort of a rock impression in the side of the hill and then asked him to talk to us in a normal voice. And we were surprised at how well we could hear him even though he was standing quite a ways from us. Our guide told us, told us that's actually probably how Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It seems that Jesus often took advantage of the geography so that people could hear him as he taught. And yet what's interesting to me here is that this passage doesn't really focus very much on Jesus' teaching. In fact, Luke doesn't record any of what Jesus says here for us. And this passage doesn't really seem to to focus on the crowd that Jesus is teaching either. Certainly he takes some steps so that they could hear him, but they don't seem to be his main focus. Instead, the way Luke tells the story, Jesus only really seems to be interested in one person here, one listener, one potential disciple that day. And that's because he's focused on the person right there in the boat with him. He's focused on Simon. I think it's kind of interesting to wonder a bit about what Simon might have thought of Jesus in this first interaction with him, right? He's sitting there in the boat listening to Jesus teach. What did he think? What did he think of what Jesus had to say? As he listened to him, what did he think of his teaching? Did he like it? Did he agree with it? Did he disagree? We don't know. We don't know what would have been going through Simon's mind. We don't know what he, sat as he, what he thought as he sat there listening to Jesus. We don't know what his opinion, his initial impression was of Jesus. But we do know his opinion of what Jesus did next. That's because after he was done teaching, Jesus made a suggestion to Simon. In verses four through five, Luke writes, when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, Lord, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. In other words, Simon really isn't very crazy about this idea. Regardless of what he would have thought of Jesus' teaching, he doesn't like this idea of going fishing. He didn't seem to think it was going to work very well. And in order to understand that, we need to talk a little bit about fishing and the way it would have worked back then. You see, the fishermen who fished the Sea of Galilee typically would have fished at night. Part of that, as any good fisherman will tell you, is because fish tend to be more active at night. During the day, when there's a lot of activity on the surface, they tend to hide away. But in the evening, once night falls, they come out and are easier to catch. The bigger reason, though, is that the nets the Galilean fishermen used back then were designed only to use at night. That's because like pretty much everyone back then, Simon, James, John, and their other partners would have used what are called trammel nets, which is a type of drag net operated by two to four people. Made of linen, they would have been invisible at night when the water was dark. But during the day, they would have been easily visible. The fish would have seen them and avoided them. And yet despite that, Jesus tells Simon Peter, an experienced fisherman who makes his living this way, to go out during the day and try for a catch. As Joel Green writes in his commentary here, Jesus' instructions to Peter seem absurd. Not only has a night's work by people who fish by profession produced nothing, but the nets used are for night fishing only. And yet, as absurd as it is, Simon listens. 
They head out on the lake, let down the nets, and as so often happens with Jesus, what takes place next is nothing short of miraculous. In verses six through seven, Luke writes, when they had done so, let down the nets, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And that's what I mean about meeting Jesus demanding a response. You see, you can't experience something like that and and not think at least something of it, right? You can't fish all night, catch nothing, row back to shore, pull the boats up, start washing your nets, meet a traveling rabbi, have him step into your boat, row out a little bit, help him teach from the boat, and then once he's done, have him tell you to put out further, let down your nets, and experience a miraculous catch of fish that should not have been possible with so many that you actually start to sink and then just shrug it off. You can't experience that and think nothing of it. You can't just chalk something like that up to coincidence. No, that kind of experience demands a response, doesn't it? It requires a reaction. It forces the one who experiences it to sit up straight, take note of Jesus, and ask the question, who is this? Who am I dealing with? What do I think of him? And then what does that mean? What does it mean for me? At least that's what Simon does here. Luke records his reaction to Jesus in verses eight through 10. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. In other words, this is where Simon realizes that there's something more to Jesus. This is where he begins to understand that this person in his boat is not just some run-of-the-mill rabbi. This is where he starts to recognize that this isn't just another teacher drawing a crowd and talking about God. Instead, Simon begins to understand that Jesus is something else, something more. He begins to understand that Jesus is someone significant, someone powerful, Someone, in the words of Luke here, who is astonishing. In short, he begins to see that Jesus is the Messiah. There will be more, much more, in fact, to come that will help Simon, James, and John continue to see that about Jesus. But this is where it starts. This is where they start seeing it. And that's what Luke wants us as his readers today to see as well. You see, that's actually been Luke's whole goal with the stories he's been telling us so far in this gospel. And we've seen a number of them already, right? From the announcement of Jesus' birth to the story of his presentation at the temple, from his temptation in the wilderness to his first uh, forays into teaching and preaching, from the exorcisms and healings that Luke has recorded in this gospel, all the way to this miraculous catch with Simon and his friends on the Sea of Galilee. Through all of that so far, these first uh, four plus chapters of his gospel, Luke has been trying to make clear that Jesus is no mere anybody. 
That he's not just another teacher or healer. That he's more than just another rabbi who has some cheap tricks and he's attracting a following. No, what Luke wants us to see, what he wants us to grasp, what he wants us to really understand here is that Jesus is someone significant, someone important, someone worth responding to. He actually wants us to see even more than that too. Because he wants us to see that Jesus is someone worth following as well. And that's what Simon and his friends do. They respond to Jesus, yes, but they also do more than that. They, they follow him. Luke writes, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. They left everything. This is easy for us to glance past, especially uh, as North American Christians today living comfortable 21st century middle-class lives. But that's what Peter, James, and John gave up to follow Jesus. That's what they gave up to be his disciples. They gave up everything. As Joel Green puts it, having returned to shore, they leave the boats and marvelous catch. Indeed, they leave everything a notation with obvious economic and vocational, but also deep-seated social ramifications. Leaving all that has been of value, they will now find their fundamental sense of belonging and being in relationship to Jesus, the community being built around him, and the redemptive purpose he serves. Green's right. Following Jesus would have had massive economic, cultural, social, and familial implications for these new disciples. Simon, James, and John are small business owners after all, right? They've just taken in the kind of production that they only could have dreamed of, and yet they leave it behind. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that Peter was married, and all of them would have had friends, family members, and a sense of belonging in their community, and yet they leave it all. They become... As, Je- as Jesus puts it, not just fishermen, but fishers of men, both for his sake and for the gospel. They follow him. Again, meeting Jesus, interacting with him, experiencing him demands a response. It begs the question, who is this? What do we think of him? What does it mean? And then it requires us who experience him to live in light of the answers that we give to those questions. You see, if we come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't really anything special, you know, that there's nothing really uh, out of the ordinary or astonishing about him, that there's nothing particularly awe-inspiring or significant about who he is, well, then we get to just keep living the same way that we always have, Right? We get to keep doing what we've always done. We get to keep going about our lives as usual, living how we want and not paying much attention to him. But if we do think that there's something to Jesus, if we do find some part of him compelling or captivating, if we do think that maybe, just maybe, he's not just another rabbi, not just another teacher, not just another healer or miracle worker, but instead something more, then that demands a response. Demands more than that even. That's because like these fishermen disciples Jesus calls here, it demands of us everything. What does that look like today? What does it mean for us modern 21st century disciples to follow Jesus? What does it look like for us to give up everything and follow him? 
Recently, I've been struck by the story of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Butterfield is a Christian author and speaker, and I've recently read a couple of her books. Uh, She tells her story in each of them, and it's a dramatic story, certainly, but it's not unfamiliar. That's because it's the story of someone who was once far from God, meeting Jesus, experiencing him, coming into relationship with him, and then as a result of that, being unable to stay the same. According to Butterfield, she grew up in a nominally Catholic household. Uh, She says she never really cared much about her faith, though, and so she walked away the first chance that she got when she was a teenager. After college and grad school, uh, she took a tenure-track position as an English professor at Syracuse University. As a lesbian, uh, she focused her research and teaching on postmodern literary criticism and queer theory. And only a few years into her time as a professor, she had risen up the ranks to become an accomplished scholar in her field. Um, in addition, she was also a committed LGBTQ plus activist and a tireless critic of all things religion. She says that she had more or less achieved everything she wanted in both her life and profession, and she was happy uh, with the way things were. That is, until she experienced what she refers to as her train wreck conversion to Christianity. In a matter of months, she went from being a staunch atheist and religious skeptic to a committed Christian believer. And as a result, she either gave up or lost pretty much everything in her life. The students and colleagues she'd worked with turned on her. She and her partner broke up. Her job didn't seem to fit anymore. And many of her closest friends stopped returning her phone calls. Now, as Butterfield makes clear, no one told her to do any of that. No one uh, told her that in order to become a Christian, she would have to end her relationship. No one made her leave her job. No one made her sell her house, move to a different part of the country, and start all over. Instead, she says, she simply felt drawn to Christ, even though she didn't really want to be. And once she was, she knew she couldn't stay the same. You see, like Simon and his friends here, once Butterfield met Jesus, experienced and interacted with him and started following him as his disciple, she knew that everything about her would be different. Now for most of us, our response for Jesus won't be that dramatic. After all, many of us have grown up in the church. We've, we've lived close to God all of our lives. We've, we've tried to do the things that he expects of us and, and live the way that he expects. And so we're not going to have that kind of experience of Jesus turning our lives upside down. Some of us might. Some of us won't. And yet I still think it's an important question to ask for ourselves, myself included. What does truly responding to Jesus look like for me? What does truly responding to Jesus look like for me? You see, if following Jesus never leads to any drama in our lives, if it never changes anything, if it never forces us to evaluate ourselves, to examine certain things, and then possibly give them up, then it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Are we really following him? because Jesus demands a response. And if we never find ourselves giving one, then we need to ask ourselves, have we really experienced him, his grace, his mercy, his transformation, the way that we need to? After all, like I said in the first sermon in this series, Jesus isn't someone that we just tack on to our already full lives. He's not like an accessory that we carry around like a purse or a pair of sunglasses. 
He's not someone we, we get by just occasionally interacting with or occasionally paying homage to. No, Jesus demands more than that. He doesn't just demand being in our lives. He demands all of our lives. He doesn't just demand that we tweak bits and pieces of who we are. Instead, he demands that we orient ourselves around him. And he doesn't demand that we only be around him from time to time so that we can occasionally interact with him. Instead, he demands that we follow, obey, and submit to him always. That's what it looks like to encounter Jesus. That's what it looks like to follow him. That's what it looks like to respond, truly respond to who he is. It leaves no part of us untouched. After all, Jesus is nothing short of the risen, ascended, and ruling king of the universe. That's what we celebrate this coming Thursday on Ascension Day. And so how can we not respond to him when that's who we follow? That's who leads us. That's our Lord and our God. And yet, and this gets us to the gospel this morning, it's important for us to remember how all of this works. You see, Simon, James, and John don't meet Jesus here because they were trying to, okay? They weren't out there searching for him, looking around, trying to come into contact with him. They weren't trying to find and follow him here. They were just trying to wash their nets. Instead, they end up following Jesus because Jesus finds them. That's the grace here. And that, my friends, is how it always works. Jesus enters our lives. We encounter him, interact with him, experience him, and suddenly we can't walk away. Like Rosaria Butterfield, we can't remain unchanged. Like Simon, James, and John, we can't stay the same. Something about Jesus captivates us, it draws us in, and it forces us to follow him where he leads us. And that's what Jesus has done for us too. It's his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. He's drawn us in, saved, and transformed us. And in return, all we do is respond. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you're the God of the universe. And Christ, your son, is our risen, ascended, and ruling Lord. You do not leave us unchanged. You take us as sinful people. You accept us as sinful people. And then you transform us through your grace and through the renewing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to respond to you as your people, as people who have experienced that grace, as people who have encountered you and so cannot stay the same. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.